welcome to the Pickup Game. I'm your host, Tim Williams, ready to talk about next week's NFL Draft with my guest, Brett Coleman, writer for SB Nation's Battle Red blog and host of the Film Room YouTube series. Brett, I know this is a busy time of year for a draft expert. Welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Your series, The Film Room, breaks down some of the best prospects in this draft. So far, you've done... Am I right to say 11 prospects so far? Uh, technically 12, but it's been 11 videos because one of them was kind of a combo evaluation with Cam Robinson and Miles Garrett going against one another. But I probably evaluated about a third of the prospects that you expect to go in the first round. And among them, who surprised you the most when doing your research and going through the film? It, it was probably... Out of all of them, I guess I would say Gary and Conley because, you know, the other two players in that secondary got all the attention in terms of Malik Hooker and Marshawn Lattimore, even though they were only one-year starters, you know, it, it became clear very early in the season that Hooker and Lattimore were going to be top 10 type of picks. And even though Conley was the only returning starter on that secondary, he kind of fell by the wayside and, and almost got forgotten about a little bit. For a while, he was considered like a second-round pick or like a late first-rounder at best. And then he went to the Combine and just put on an absolute show. And in my breakdown, I kind of touched a little bit on, on how the Combine helped him, but also showed on the film that he is he is a top-15 type of corner in his own right. And it's almost kind of like Lattimore's the 1A and Conley's the 1B. And it's not often that you see one team have three top-15 picks in the same secondary. But uh, I definitely think Ohio State is that team. I think they are going to have three top 15 picks come out of that secondary this year. And you mentioned the combine. When you break down the combine, it all seems so academic, but you can really learn a lot about the prospects. What what is it about the combine that you can really learn that you can take away as a true football skill and then some stuff that you might just think is is just there for show or just there to put on paper? You know, a lot of it, you know, there are the numbers and everything like that, you know, trying to confirm, you know, the height, weight, speed stuff that you see on tape. And and sometimes their numbers come back that are totally different than what you expect. And it makes you go back to the tape and, and kind of reevaluate what you watch and be like, okay, did did I just missee things? You know, did I, did I see things with rose-colored glasses on because I wanted to see them? So getting, getting those kind of unbiased numbers helps with that. But the main value of the combine, to me, at least in terms of evaluation, is seeing them in the drills and, and seeing them do things that maybe they haven't done before because of the schemes that they play in, uh, in terms of pedaling and driving with a T-step. You know, maybe they don't teach certain ways to do a bail technique, so when you see them do the bail technique drills, you can see them kind of move how a, a an NFL defense would have them move. And almost like a, you kind of want to meet the bar the, the, the minimum bar in these drills to make sure that they can operate in an NFL scheme compared to a college scheme. And when you look at Gary and Conley, he ran through every drill flawlessly. And even though he's a bigger corner, he showed himself to be, to have the agility of a smaller corner, which is a rare physical skill set. And that's why I think he's going to go way high up in the draft. Yeah, you mentioned college style football, which can be, it, I, I, I would imagine that maybe the toughest 
thing a draft expert has to do is translate college-style football to the pros. And on the film room, you talk a lot about schemes and a lot about how a player's coaches use them, sometimes to a player's detriment. I saw you mention with O.J. Howard that he was, his numbers were kind of hurt by the way Alabama used him, and they didn't quite get as much out of him as they could have. So would you say it's very tough to go through the film and try and figure out the differences between the college-style game and what a player might be able to bring to the pros and what they might not be able to bring to the pros as well. It's definitely the hardest part about it in terms of projecting from a college-style defense or college-style offense into a pro-style defense and offense. And if it was easy, you know, anybody could do it. Um, but being able to kind of decipher what is and is not usable in terms of tape, like not all tape is really relevant. You know, sometimes – teams have players doing things that they just will never ever do in the NFL. So you can't really get anything from those snaps. Um, you know, look at Pat Mahomes and the air raid, Texas tech offense, nobody in the NFL runs the air raid. So his tape for the most part, you're just going off of a physical skill set and, and what he can do on a whiteboard in private meetings, because his tape itself is almost worthless. You know, he's never going to be in an air raid in the NFL. Um, Jabril Peppers, to a lesser degree, had very deceptive tape, and you're kind of projecting him completely based off of a physical skill set and the few snaps that we got to see him do things that he'll do in the pros. You know, he played kind of that hybrid linebacker safety position, but in a different way than even the pros use hybrid linebackers and safeties. So it's a very unique position, very unique tape evaluation, and kind of being able to to see physical skill sets through the scheme is what makes this so difficult, but it's also what makes it so fun. Yeah, I can I can imagine it's a lot of fun. Do you start to root for these players come draft day? Are there times where you'll be disappointed that a player will go to a team that you just think on draft night they're not going to take advantage of this player's unique talents or skill set, and they're going to kind of waste this player away? I know personally we've talked before about certain players in the NFL that never really got a chance to play their style of football and it made them look like draft busts and that might not necessarily have been entirely their fault do you get that impression sometimes on draft day oh absolutely absolutely you know there are certain players every year that when they go to a team you just kind of think to yourself why like why why are they taking them um it's whether it's a quarterback, whether it's a receiver, or a corner, you know, you, cornerback specifically, not every corner can work in every single scheme. You know, Richard Sherman is great in the Seattle scheme. I'm not saying he's not a great corner, but you know, the scheme helps him because it fits his physical skill set. But if he was trying to go to, to Houston or San Diego or somewhere that was running, you know, seven by one off man coverage, he wouldn't even start. You know, it's crazy how on one team you can be a top three or top five corner in the NFL, and on another team you would barely make the roster just because of how they they play and their certain style of defense. So I do root for all these kids to go to teams that will use them properly, and uh, unfortunately it's, it's not going to happen to some of them. Some of them are going to have to wait three or four years until they can go in free agency to a team that will use them properly, but Hopefully most of these guys are going to go to a good situation because I, I do genuinely root for all of them. 
I'm glad you brought up defensive schemes and how different players can really fit or not fit in different defenses because we talk about that a lot with offense. And we talk about certain passing offenses or certain styles of offense benefit one player over another and would be a waste of talent for certain players to take on. But you don't hear that a lot with defense. And I think that's something that the that a lot of football fans just haven't thought about enough. And when they look at the draft as it applies to their team, which I'd say most fans really look at it in terms of their own team, I think they haven't thought enough about the scheme that a player will fit in. Not all defensive players are one size fits all. Yeah, in fact, very few of them are. You know, even in this own draft class right here, I'd say maybe only a handful of players at all can you can point to and say they would fit on any team. Jamal Adams is one of them, and that's why he's going to be a top three or top five pick. Miles Garrett's one of them. He's going to be the first overall pick. But after that, you start looking at all these defensive players, and they only fit maybe half the teams at most, maybe half. So, you know, kind of that's why every team's draft board is totally different because four three teams are going to be looking for different players than three four teams. Off cover teams are going to be looking for different players than press teams. Um, you know, some teams like size and, and strength in the linebackers, like Houston, where they just want beef in the middle that can stop the run. You look at Atlanta; their middle linebacker is like two hundred twenty five pounds. So it's it's a huge variety of schemes, which means there's a huge variety of of talent and a huge variety of big boards. So you never really know where all these guys are going to go because every team might have totally different grades. And that kind of brings us to the top of the draft. The t- top two teams, the Browns and Niners, need talent everywhere on the football field, but especially at quarterback. And that that makes this draft kind of unfortunate because there isn't a true top-of-the-draft signal caller. There might be a couple that turn out to be pretty good pros in there, but there's nobody that you would really project to go number one or number two for any reason other than they're the best quarterback in this draft. And how does the lack of a true top-of-the-draft signal caller impact those two teams? Well, it definitely sucks, you know, because it was almost, you know, as we went on through the regular season, it almost kind of, was like a, a a race to Miles Garrett because he was the only guy that you could look to in the whole class where you felt comfortable saying no doubt, no doubt number one pick. Um, there was no quarterback like that, and both teams need quarterbacks, so it was almost like a, a Miles Garrett or bust situation. And uh, unfortunately for San Francisco, they decided to win one extra game with Colin Kaepernick that they didn't need to win. Uh, if you're looking at it from a tanking perspective. And they kind of lost the sweepstakes to Garrett. So now Cleveland has the easy job of just taking a franchise pass rusher and trying to see which quarterback falls to the second round, while San Francisco's pick is extraordinarily hard to project because there isn't the easy guy like Miles Garrett that's going to be sitting there that they could point to and say, okay, no-brainer, let's take him. They have to sort through all these other blue-chip prospects that may or may not fit them, absent quarterback, you know, they're looking through Malik Hooker and Jamal Adams and O.J. Howard, and they're trying to figure out, okay, which one can we take safely because we know we're not taking a quarterback because we just don't want to screw up the second overall pick. Their draft is so much harder than Cleveland because they don't have Miles Garrett available to them and because they don't have a quarterback available to them. It's I, I do not envy them at all. 
Now, that's not to say this is a thin draft by any stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of talent in this first round. And in fact, throughout the first round, there are some teams picking later that could get a true guy that leaps them up the um, NFL rankings. But the good thing about being both the Browns or the 49ers at this point is you need talent everywhere. You just need to find someone to build around. You can't, you're not going to find your entire team overnight anyway. So you have yeah. to start somewhere. You might as well start with a high pick, but you're right. There's no clear number two in this draft that San Francisco can pick. There are a bunch of guys that could be fantastic pros and great for them, but they're starting from scratch. And, you know, almost, it's, it's kind of weird how. They might actually be fortunate if if what I think will happen might happen um, in that because there is so much other talent in this draft, this is a very, very strong first round of the draft class in terms of talent at every single position, especially on defense. The fact that there is so much great talent means that some quarterbacks might get pushed down the board. And my own mock draft that I have coming out next week, uh, I have Deshaun Kaiser as the only first-round quarterback which means that at the top of the second round, you've got Mitch Trubisky, you've got Deshaun Watson, you've got Pat Mahomes, you've got Brad Kaya. They're all going to be available at the top of the second round if what happens happens in my mock draft. So now the Browns might legitimately have an opportunity to get Miles Garrett and then either like a free safety or you know whoever the best player on the board is at number 12 overall, and they have a legitimate shot of getting a quarterback at 33 overall. Do I think that it's going to happen? More likely than not. I mean, when's the last time only one quarterback went in the first round? But there is a chance it could happen, which is pretty good for them. Well, and of course, teams don't change overnight because of a single draft pick. But there are some teams this year who could really be one player away if it's the right player in the right spot from being a true contender. Who do you think in the first round is in the best position to use that pick to make a leap into the playoffs this year? It really depends on a multitude of factors in terms of whether or not the person they're picking is someone that throws the ball, protects the guy that throws the ball, or hunts the guy that throws the ball. You know, there's a lot of teams that are kind of knocking on the door and they're really close to making the playoffs, but they're not quite there yet. Um, the Titans have two picks in the first round, and they're knocking on the door of the playoffs. They've already got a pretty strong team, but they lost Marcus Mariota last year, which kind of had them fall apart in the end of the season. If they can use those two picks to get maybe another receiver from Mariota and like another pass rusher like uh, Malik McDowell at 18 overall, that could instantly push them not only into playoff contender, but potentially making a very deep playoff run. So they're the guys that I look to immediately that, that could be that one or two player away. The Buccaneers are very similar. If they get an offensive tackle in the first round, like a Garrett Bowles or Ryan Ramchick, somebody that can actually protect Jameis Winston because uh, Donovan Smith is just not getting it done. They could be one player away. You know, all these kind of pick 14 to pick 19 kind of teams, they're very, very close, very close. And we could potentially see half of them be in the playoffs next season. Yeah, I thought about the Titans, too, since they have the fifth overall pick and could potentially pick someone like an O.J. Howard, who's not a receiver but a tight end and can fill that weapon for Mariota role in a big way that 
could really help vault the Titans in a winnable division, although as you follow the Texans, you, you'll quickly point out that there's a very good team in that division who themselves are in a position to make a good draft pick and maybe do something next year as well. But the Titans are in a great position. And when you mention the Bucks and you mention an offensive tackle, it's funny. A lot of what I hear about what people want to pick it around Tampa Bay, they all seem to want a running back because the team went through four different ones last year. And yes, they did go through four different ones, but I would sense a common theme when all your running backs get hurt and your quarterback's running for his life every other play. I don't know if that's necessarily a skill position problem myself. Yeah, no, if I have a young quarterback, my number one priority is to build around him, and the best way to build around him is to protect him. That's what Dallas did with Dak Prescott, and Dak Prescott is not as good of a quarterback as Jameis Winston, but he had more success because his offensive line was beastly. You know, you could put any running back behind that Dallas offensive line, and they would have been fine. Ezekiel Elliott is obviously the more talented of their backs, and he had a great season, but it's not like Alfred Morris could not have had a good season behind that offensive line. And I think their investment in the line over the last five years should be the blueprint for the rest of the league on how to have their roster kind of complement a young quarterback. You know, if you can protect a young quarterback, it it makes it a hell of a lot easier for them to develop. Jameis Winston, I think, is a, a transcendent talent at quarterback, but he needs to actually stay on his feet and be able to throw the ball or he's not going to be able to do anything. So to me, if, if Garrett Bowles is on the board there at 19, Tampa Bay cannot pass on him because he is the the best way to get the most out of Jameis Winston. That said, it is a deep draft for running backs. I wouldn't want I wouldn't think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers should be taking one, but this is a deep first round for running backs. There's a lot of real talent, led of course by Leonard Fournette, who could be one of those real transcendent running back kind of players. But there, there are plenty of prospects that could take the ball in the running game and do something with it. But they need an offensive line. Offense is the most or- team-oriented thing in sports. The passing game may be above all, but you can't run without blockers. And there are a lot of teams that try and shortcut that and get the perfect running back. But unless he's going to make three people miss in the backfield every play, I don't know what teams are going to do with some of these guys. Yeah, and, you know, Doug Martin's out of rehab, so it's not like there's no way that he, can, he can't come back next season. You know, it's, it, it, he might be gone, but we don't know that he's gone yet. So until we see how they draft, if they start drafting a whole bunch of running backs, that might tell you something like, okay, maybe they don't think Martin's coming back. But if they completely ignore the running back position, that tells you that they do think Martin's coming back and that they could potentially be fine at running back. So we might not actually know what's going on with him until after the draft. And I think that's a, that's a pretty fair assessment as well. I, I, I actually really like the skill positions they have at offense, although later in the draft, if, if I'm Jason Light, I start looking at receivers, particularly speedy receivers who could return a kick or a punt. They just don't have – they have a decent kick and punt returner that got hurt last year and was replaced with a horrible kick and punt returner, and it really cost them. Special teams can make a big difference for a team that 
is right on the precipice of maybe making the playoffs and is going to be facing a tougher schedule next year. You need that field position battle, and you need depth. And that's one thing they've learned in the first two years with Winston. By December, he had one guy to throw to both of those years. They need depth. I, I like that they signed Deshaun Jackson, but later in the draft, they might be looking for an extra weapon for that guy. Kind of a dark horse that I'm looking at for them. It's Curtis Samuel from Ohio State. He played running back. He played receiver. He was a good return man for them. He's he's kind of like a like a slightly more polished version of Tavon Austin. Um, I don't know if he'll go as high as Tavon Austin did because that was a very unique situation in a very bad draft class, and I don't think he should have been a top 15 pick to begin with. Um, but I do think Samuel has a first-round grade. He, he definitely does for me. And I think 19, you know, in the, in the mid to late teens is when you start looking at him as potentially an option for a lot of these teams especially for Tampa, because they could use more receiving depth. They could use a return man. Potentially, they could even use a change of pace back, which he played at Ohio State. So he's a very versatile player. He's got exceptional speed. He runs in the low four threes. He's got quick feet in and out of his breaks. Um, you know, and, and maybe he does slip to the second round because he's not the biggest guy. And John Ross and, and you know, Corey Davis and Mike Williams, they're all getting their attention at receiver. But he is a weapon that I would look at for Tampa that kind of fills that versatile role that can play anywhere on the field and kind of give Jameis Winston one extra extremely fast, extremely elusive target to throw to. Sticking with a Florida theme for a moment, since this is, after all, going to be put up on Sports Talk Florida, a, a website based in the Tampa Bay area, there's a lot of talk this year, I mentioned running backs being pretty deep, that Dalvin Cook has kind of gone up and then down and then back up and back down the draft board. He's been one of the guys that, when I see these mock drafts, bounces the most. What do you make of Dalvin Cook? I have a first-round grade on him, but I don't have him in the first round of my mock. And it's not necessarily an indictment of him. I just I couldn't find a spot for him. You know, it, 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 it's just one of those drafts where it's so loaded with talent that you know, you can look in any position group and be like, okay, yeah, maybe this team might take a corner or a safety over a running back just because everybody else is so freaking talented. So it's not really his fault that he might slip, um, but he definitely might slip. You know, he does have the, the shoulder injury concern. There's the off-the-field stuff. I don't necessarily think that he's a bad guy off the field. I think it was a 14-year-old kid getting mixed up in a bad neighborhood. You know, I, I don't hold that really against him like I hold uh, Joe Mixon's stuff against him and I, I know Jameis Winston wants Dalvin Cook on the Bucks, so again he's another option at 19 but I think whatever team does get him is going to be very satisfied with what they get because they're definitely going to be getting him at a value his running backs tend to fall and when he's on the field and he's healthy he is the second best running back in this class he's he's an exceptional receiver He's got burst. He can run in man-blocking schemes. He can run his own blocking schemes. You know, he, he is a slam dunk first-round starting running back. So whoever gets him, I think, is going to be really happy. You're listening to The Pickup Game. I'm Tim Williams here with Brett Coleman of the Film Room YouTube series. We'll be back after a short break. Golf. A good walk spoiled? The only four-letter word you can say on a course that you can repeat in front of children, 
a source of endless joy and humility. It's the game so many of us love. At Ground Under Repair here on the Podcast Lab Network, I bring you golf from a different angle. I'll talk to groundskeepers, club pros, course designers, marshals, caddies, league organizers, range managers, and all the other people who help put it all together for us. I'm columnist Tim Williams. Join me weekly for Ground Under Repair, where golf is for everyone. Welcome back to the Pickup Game. I'm joined by Brett Coleman, host of the Film Room YouTube series. Brett, you mentioned doing a mock draft, and I won't be asking you to give away your mock draft at all because that's a that's a big special coming up. But just doing a mock draft seems like that can be a really daunting task because you're you're imagining all sorts of scenarios. Do you even factor in the idea of a trade and try and do? I've seen people try and do that, and it just seems mind-blowing to me that you can get around all the logistics of draft day trades on top of all that i i used to do trades and it's fun to do trades but it just it complicates everything so much it you know and then you have to try to figure out like you know what's the value of a trade up and because not every team values their picks the same some teams just throw them away to go get their guys some teams like to trade back and stockpile as many picks as possible you know, trying to project all that, it's it's just so complicated and, and needlessly complex. So I don't I don't do that much anymore. But what I do do when I mock draft, which kind of adds to the difficulty, is I don't try to predict what teams are going to take because, again, that's almost impossible to try to figure out what other teams' boards are. I just draft as if I'm the general manager and I make the picks that I would make. And I do that so that in a couple years I can go back and look at the mock and say, okay, who was right? You know, if I have a guy in the top 15 that might not be in the first round for most teams, if he blows up and becomes a great player, it, you know, I, I can say, like, okay, I hit on that pick. If he plays below that level, I can say, all right, what did I miss? What what made me put him in the top 15 that, that he should not have been in the top 15? So it's a good kind of self-evaluation method in that way. Um but it also helps me kind of be more true to myself because I can I can draft based on my own big board rather than trying to guess the big board for 32 other teams. So it's, it's both easier and harder in, in different ways. Now, you write for Battle Red Blog, which covers the Houston Texans. You work throughout the day. So during college football season, do you get to watch a lot of these players or are you really seeing most of them for the first time when you're breaking down film and the combine and going through the getting ready for the film room? Yeah, I, I do get to see a bunch of them, but not everybody because, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the SEC game of the week is always Alabama. So you're always going to see Alabama on CBS. You don't really get to see much of the, the other SEC teams, at least not as much as you want to. Um, and out here in Southern California, the USC and UCLA and all the Pac-12 stuff kind of dominates television. So you don't get to see everybody outside of the usual primetime teams. But I do make it a point to to kind of archive every single college game on hard drives so I can go back and watch them later. There's a bunch of full games on YouTube that I can watch and, and then use those as a resource. But in terms of what I cut my episodes from, it's always from games that are on my hard drives. So I do have access to every single game. It's just a matter of not being able to watch all of them live. That sounds like 
a daunting task now that you mention it that way. How how many hours do you think goes go into about every episode of the film room? Uh, depending on who it is, between fifty to ninety, I would say. It's uh, it's it's pretty beefy. I've been working on this mock draft for two weeks now. And usually I would release a video on Thursday, but I can't release it until Monday because this thing's going to be probably close to an hour and a half, and it's going to have a couple hundred hours of work into it. So I've been doing 12-hour days ever since my last episode came out, and I'm still not done. Do you go all the way through the draft when you do your mock draft? Oh, yeah, I'm doing all 32 picks. I'm going to have detailed explanations on every single one, probably between three to five minutes of explanation, sometimes more. Um you know, film breakdowns and all that stuff. So it's it's a monster, pretty beefy mock. Yeah, it, it sounds like a lot of work, but you also sound very excited about it. You've done mock drafts for how many years now? Uh, in video form, this is going to be my first one. I've had written mocks for, for every year for the last five years, but this is the first one I'm putting on the YouTube channel and kind of have it stand as public record for all time. So I'm I'm pretty stoked about it. Yeah, that that seems like a a step forward. You're you're doing these every year, and now you're putting it out there. and And I'd imagine it's something that you have to do over time, or you won't get better at it because you have to go and evaluate what you did previously, like you mentioned before. Yeah, it's it's definitely part art and, and part science in terms of mock drafting, and experience plays a lot into it. And you know, learning from past mistakes and kind of reinforcing past successes, and just kind of finding your groove and the more you do it, the better you get at it in terms of uh, evaluation. I mean, so it's, it's almost like a muscle, you know, it, it gets stronger the more you work it out. As a game film expert, what have you learned to look for over the years that most football fans wouldn't notice when we're watching the games on Saturday or Sunday? If something goes right or something goes wrong for a player, there's always at least 20 reasons why. And when I watch a play, I watch it dozens and dozens of times because I want to understand exactly what went wrong or what went right for every single player on the field. Because um, every single snap is almost like its own story. You know, if, if a, a quarterback makes a complete pass over the middle, I want to know, okay, when he was moving around in the pocket, how was his protection? Was it a totally clean pocket from start to finish, or did he have to sense a rush coming off the edge and step up? I want to know how his feet and mechanics were when he was under pressure. I want to know how the receiver ran his route to get so open, and so I can understand their timing better. I want to understand how the corner was able or was unable to cover. What did the corner do wrong to give up that separation? I want to know where the safety was. Why wasn't the safety in position to help if he was supposed to be in the help? And, you know, you kind of break down the scheme of the offense, the scheme of the defense. Why did this route concept work or not work? You know, there's a lot of things that go into every individual play. And the more you understand those individual components, the better evaluation you can do because it gives more context. And context is the number one key to evaluating film. If you can understand the context of a play, you can understand the player. It sounds like you're watching a lot of stuff that's going on away from the, as you might think about, away from the play, but really it's making the play happen. 
for example, offensive lineman or a receiver trying to block or making a block when when there's a running play going on or a quarterback scrambling. Yeah, you know, sometimes a receiver's running a, a, a slant, you know, and there's three or four different kinds of ways to run a slant that might only give a, a very short window, but at a certain time in the window is when the rhythm of the throw is supposed to take place. So, you know, not, not every route is supposed to be open and then stay open. Some routes are just meant to get open immediately or maybe uncover late. And it's the rhythm of the offense that dictates at what point that window is supposed to be open. So if the receiver runs the route properly and gets the window he's supposed to get, and then it slams shut while the quarterback is kind of running for his life, I still grade that as a positive play because the receiver did his job, but the offensive lineman didn't. So again, understanding the context of that play and understanding that not all routes are supposed to be open the entire time, it kind of helps you grade receivers more accurately. Are there any giveaways that you think a player who might be exceptionally talented in terms of physical skills that on paper should be a fantastic football player, but then you see something on film and you start to wonder if maybe that particular player might not be as good as he seems when it comes to an NFL context. Yeah, I you look at a lot of the edge players in this class, and I think the quality of the pass rushing talent in this class has been a little bit overblown. Um, obviously, Miles Garrett's there at the top, kind of carrying the banner, but there's not a ton of other edge players in this class that I can really point to and say, that guy's going to be a double-digit sack kind of player. Um, Derek Barnett is the first guy I think of who I don't have him in my first round. I, I think he's heavily overrated. Not that he can't be a good contributing defensive lineman in a rotation, but I don't see him as this, you know, 12 to 15 sack a year kind of edge rusher that everybody else sees. But to me, you have to have a trait as a pass rusher that you can build around, whether it's your first step, whether it's your strength, your length, your fluidity, your hand usage, you know, the more traits you have that you can build around, the more successful you're going to be. Miles Garrett's going first overall because he has every single trait. Derek Barnett has maybe, maybe one, and that's hand usage and technique. His first step is okay. His bend is okay. His strength is okay. He's not super long. He's not super twitchy. You know, he, he doesn't have that one elite physical trait that you can point to and say, okay, yeah, I can work with this. So even though he's got a lot of production, you know, he broke Reggie White's sack record at Tennessee, you know, you look at the offensive tackles he's going against, and he's not beating them with a physical trait. He's just beating them because offensive tackles in college football are bad. You know, when he's going up against legitimate NFL left tackles, he didn't do anything. So, you know, he's a guy that I think is heavily overrated. And I I hope that nobody takes him in the top 15 because I think they're going to be pretty disappointed with what they get. You mentioned that you only have one quarterback going in the first round, and it was it's Deshaun Kaiser. Is he so? I, I would take it you think he's the best quarterback in this draft. I think he's the guy that you most feel comfortable with developing into a good quarterback. I don't think any quarterback in this class is ready to play year one at a high level. Um, you know, unless 
obviously it's like a Dak Prescott situation where they go to an offense so loaded that they can just kind of, you know, be the distributor and not have to put the load on their shoulders. But there's not a lot of those situations in the NFL. So I think Deshaun Kaiser is, is the one guy you point to where if you're sitting him on the bench, I think he can be the best quarterback in 2018. I think Mitch Trubisky, he's not a guy you can play year one, and I don't like him to develop as fast as Deshaun Kaiser. Um, Brad Kaya, I think, is less physically talented than Deshaun Kaiser. Deshaun Watson is less physically talented than Deshaun Kaiser. All these guys are going to have to sit on the bench anyway, but Kaiser at least has the physical tools to be very successful. He comes from an offense with pro-style concepts, so I know he can digest the playbook. And it's really just kind of mechanical uh, inconsistencies that he's got to work out. Whereas some of these other quarterbacks are going to have to completely change the way that they play the position. So Kaiser's got a leg up in that department. And I think if you put him on a team where he can sit on the bench and marinate for a year in 2018, he can take over and start and be a good quarterback. I think for a lot of teams, that's the way to go in general, because it's great to talk about the transcendent quarterback that can change a team overnight, but those guys are extremely rare by definition. It's it, it's fantastic when they're out there and the team can get them, but they're most teams, especially the teams that are a quarterback away from being a true contender, are never going to be in a position to get there because they play the regular season and finish six and ten or seven and nine, and they're on that they're in that middle ground of the draft. But if you can have if you have a team built without the skill positions and you get the skill positions to complement an offensive line, that can be as dangerous as anything. As you mentioned with the Cowboys last year, starting a rookie running back and a rookie quarterback and just taking off because they had a fantastic offensive line that wasn't going to let people get to them. And I think that this year is excellent proof of that with quarterbacks. It would be a great example for a team to take that might need one in the later first round or, or, or trade into this early second round and get the quarterback they need. And I think that's a great opportunity. And of them, the one I like is Mitchell Trubisky just because he fits that perfect profile. I always talk about how great it would be if in the impossible way that they could do a hockey style draft, he would be a free agent under a hockey style draft. He would have never been drafted by age 20. So he's a great example of that. So personally, I always like that having that in my back pocket. Yeah, and, and you know, the teams are lucky that there's a ton of non-quarterback talent in this draft because they're going to be able to build out their rosters and, and make their rosters better for an incoming rookie quarterback down the line, especially when you look at next year's quarterback class. You know, this is the year that you can take talent to make a team more forgiving for the – excuse me, for the 2018 class. And if you're lucky enough to get Sam Darnold or you're lucky enough to get the kid from Wisconsin or Washington or, or Louisville, you know, if you can use this opportunity this year to make your team better, you can make your rookie quarterback better next year by default. Absolutely. And then, of course, you mentioned it's a very deep draft for defense. It's there. There are players at every defensive position that could, could really help a team almost right away. In in certain cases, right away. And it's what makes it kind of convenient for the Browns that they don't have a debate at number one. That they can just take Miles Garrett 
and build a defense around a player you can pretty much build a team around. Yeah, I mean, th- their job is done already. Like, they know they're getting Garrett. So it's already almost a successful draft just based on that, you know. So it, it, every other pick after that is just kind of gravy. You know, you, you have the number 12 overall pick, so you can just take best player available, whether it's offense or defense, and just say, who cares? We got Miles Garrett. This draft is already fine. You know, we'll roll with Cody Kessler for a year or Brock Osweiler for a year, and we'll we'll get a quarterback later. But, you know, it's it's Miles Garrett and a whole bunch of gravy on top, and we'll figure it out later. And And I think it's – this these next two drafts are like best case scenario for Cleveland because they have so many picks and there's so much talent that they can make their team better before wel- welcoming in a quarterback in 2018. So th- they have to be ecstatic. Well, and they're in a unique position of actually having a fan base that's willing to be patient because it's been forced on them because there's no top quarterback in this draft or top offensive player that people can pretend is going to vault a team into contention right away. The expectations won't be particularly high for the Browns. There won't be a big spotlight on them coming into next year so they can position themselves for another draft and build their team long-term, which a lot of NFL teams, it's not that they're trying to look for a quick fix. It's that they don't have another option. They're under pressure to look for a quick fix. And the Browns don't have to do that, so that's a great position to be in as well. Yeah, you look at Tampa a couple of years ago when they took Jameis Winston. Everybody was looking around, saying like, "Okay, they have to win now." You know, they got their quarterback; they have to win right now. And they've been a better team since they got Winston. They haven't made the playoffs yet, but they've gotten closer every single year to making the playoffs. So, you know, he was that kind of quick fix player that they looked to, and there was a lot of pressure on him. And credit to him and credit to the Bucks front office and the Bucks coaching staff for kind of handling that pressure and, and not totally folding. So obviously we're going to see that pressure up close this year with hard knocks. They're getting hard knocks, but you know, they took a quarterback number one overall that they felt deserved the pick because they felt like he could carry them to the playoffs. And now they're knocking on the door of the playoffs and they've got to get it done this year. And it's a lot of pressure, but I do think that Jameis Winston can handle it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This is a this is a real make or break year for that team as it exists right now with Winston calling signals, with Dirk Cutter coaching, and with Jason Light running the organization. Things might start to look a lot bleaker if they take a step back this year or if they just spin their tires and they finish nine and seven again and miss the playoffs. That's going to be a problem because you can only wait so long and they've done a good job at delaying expectations they had a lot when they first got Winston but they never were really expected to be a playoff team now they are and certainly Bucks fans know that happened a few years ago and the team immediately folded under the pressure and had to be blown apart and this is the result of the ensuing rebuild right here so it's it's a real make-or-break year, and um, hopefully it goes a lot better than 2011 for them. Yeah, it's an eerily similar situation to when it was Josh Freeman and, and uh, Garrett Blunt and Mike Williams as the young triplets, and everybody's like, okay, this is going to be the core. They're going to make Super Bowl runs. This is the future. And then it just collapsed. And I think you look at the young core now, you've got Mike Evans, you've got Jameis Winston, um, you got Deshaun Jackson as a veteran. 
they're still looking for that other kind of young piece to the triplets, but I think I, I have more confidence in this young core than I did in Tampa's young core, you know, six years ago or whatever it was. So I think the future is bright, but the expectations are astronomically high, definitely more than they are in Cleveland. And they, they got to get it done. I think the only team in Florida where the expectations aren't all that high is Jacksonville. There's another team that's in a very good position to rebuild on kind of a slow burn, that they're not going to get it all overnight, that they're not necessarily looking for a quarterback. We're not, it's not looking great for Blake Bortles, but he's also not old enough or not beaten up enough that we can write him off entirely. So the Jacksonville Jaguars are in a position where they've got a new coach they have a lot of talent that they need throughout their team. They have a lot of holes on their team. They're not going to be expected to win right away, but they're going to be in a position where they can make a couple waves early on if they are on the right path. And I think they don't have to do particularly well to energize their fan base. If they won eight games, I think people would be thrilled in Jacksonville. Yeah, they don't have to make the playoffs. I mean, people are obviously frustrated because they've picked in the top five every year for, it seems like, six years now, and, and nothing's changed. Um, so, the, obviously, they're frustrated because they, they have all this talent on defense, they have all this talent on offense, and they just can't get any wins. But they don't expect to make the playoffs. If they can just be an average team, I think they'll be satisfied. And then you look at 2018, that's when they're going to have them take that step up. You know, it's, it's almost like, like the, the Bucks are one year ahead of the Jaguars in that the Bucks became an average team. Now they need to become a playoff team, whereas the Jags are still a bad team that needs to become an average team. And I think the team in Florida that's in the weirdest position would be Miami because they're, they're on the ascendancy. They're an average team. They could be a good team, but they're in a division where you could be a good team, and that might not matter at all. You know, unless they start beating the Patriots, it's it's all irrelevant because the playoffs are going to run through New England anyway. And the Dolphins, for whatever reason, can only beat New England in Miami. They cannot beat them in Foxborough. So until they can start winning in Foxborough, none of this matters. <laughs> you know, It sucks for them, but it, it just doesn't matter until they start beating the Patriots on the road. Well, that's been the AFC East for, well, over a decade now that – it's kind of a foregone conclusion unless you can build a team that can somehow compete with the Patriots. Good luck even finding a wild card spot in the rest of that AFC. Yeah, because they're going to be competing with Houston and Tennessee and Baltimore and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and basically the entire AFC West for that wild card spot because you know they're not going to win the division. And it's, it's a lot of stress on them because they have no margin for error. You know, it's it's either they go 11 and five or they're not making the playoffs. There's none of this nine and seven, ten and six sneak in kind of stuff. Like they have to be a very above average team, or they are not making the playoffs. Yeah, they're they're in a tough position, but coming into this week, it's a good position for them in the draft because there's no one they can select that's going to put the expectations any higher or any lower for the Miami Dolphins. Really, I I don't know if there's anything they can do on draft day to change their position right now. Yeah. Unless there's like a premier talent that falls out of nowhere that they scoop up kind of like they did with Laramie Tunsil last year, who was the best player in the draft that they got at 13 out of nowhere. They had no expectations to get him, but they ended up getting him. 
if something like that happens again, not necessarily because of a weed gas mask, but if a premier talent falls to them at 22 and they scoop them up, that's when you can start to say like, okay, maybe they got something here. But in that, that range of the draft, it's, it's, it's hard to get a blue chip player that late. So we'll see what they can come out with, but it might be like a, they might get a, a very solid contributing player, uh, but not necessarily a cornerstone. They got a cornerstone last year, but uh, we'll see what they do. They can go in a whole bunch of different places in the draft. They need a safety. They need a guard. They need defensive end. They need linebacker. They've got options. It's funny you mentioned the gas mask because certainly character concerns matter in the draft, and it's there's no amount of examples we can give that will convince anyone that they don't matter because they do. It's young people that are about to get an extremely lucrative contract and become stars. They need to be somewhat mature and ready to handle that. And you, But you look at certain people who fall in the draft and the reasons they fall, and there are certain reasons that seem to come up every year, and they always cause someone to fall in the draft, and that player ends up being really good in the NFL. And, and I just wonder if there's a pattern to these certain kind of things you can get caught doing that are too much and the, the certain things you can get caught doing that really aren't going to impact your NFL career very much and might just give a team a gift like they got in, say, Tyron Matthew a few years ago. Yeah, you know, every individual situation is different. You know, there's Tyreek Hill who is a supremely talented player that did a horrible, horrible thing, but he still ended up getting drafted and he ended up being a good player on the field. And then there's other players where it's Randy Gregory, who I thought was one of the five best players in his draft class. And he did something that I don't consider horrible at all, which is a smoking weed. And he's suspended for almost his entire career because he likes smoking weed and he can't stop smoking weed. And is it a horrible, heinous crime? No, but it's against league rules. Whereas Tyreek Hill's thing is a horrible, heinous crime, but it's not something that you like to do and that you do all the time. So, you know, that's the difference between being on the field your entire rookie year and, and having a huge contribution despite you being a scumbag, scumbag. Whereas if you just like weed, you won't see the field at all. You know, it's, it's this horrible, stupid kind of imbalance in the rules that I, I really hate. And I'm glad that they're kind of, taking a look at the, the the drug offenses and all that stuff and they're and they're thinking about getting rid of the restrictions on weed because it is kind of ridiculous you know it is kind of ridiculous that so many careers are essentially being ruined over something that over 60 percent of the american population does not care about you know randy gregory's career has been completely derailed josh norman's career has been completely derailed tyron matthew's career was almost derailed and yeah, he plummeted a huge portion yeah, and he fell to the third round in the draft when he was a first-round talent. He lost millions of dollars because of, of this stupid rule that makes no sense. You know, and, and I, I, I absolutely despise it. I despise this culture of punishing people for something that does not matter. They're only doing it to appease advertisers, and it's, it's sickening to me that we're taking millions of dollars from these kids, and we're, we're keeping them from being on the field for something so arbitrary. And you look at Tim Williams in this draft class. He's a pass rusher from Alabama. He's a first-round talent. He's one of the best edge rushers in this whole class, one of the few edge rushers that I think can be an immediate contributor 
as a pass rusher, but he's got a big weed problem. And by problem, I use that in quotations because he just really likes weed. Do I care that he likes weed? No. Does the NFL care that he likes weed? Yes. And that's why he's being pushed down draft boards because people don't, don't want to risk him getting suspended. Not that they disagree that he smokes weed. Most players smoke weed. It's the best way to deal with pain management in the league. They don't want to get hooked on opiates, so they smoke weed. But they don't want to have their player get suspended for that. So they're going to push him down the draft board. It's dumb. It's dumb that they just don't want to deal with the issue. They would rather not draft a guy at all because he smokes weed. It's, you know, the fact that Laramie Tunsil lost almost $20 million last year because of that one video is insane to me. Completely insane to me. I, it's, it's my least favorite thing about the league right now. And it makes these, it makes reading about the draft kind of a, a bit of a minefield because it's so easy when you're writing about the draft it's so easy to just go with the hot take and to try and play amateur psychiatrist and try and get in player's head and say, this means this. And because of that, you shouldn't draft this guy and he's going to be an NFL bust. And, and it, it's always a lot of mind reading from people who have never been in a position, anything like any of these players are in coming into the draft and I find it funny, and sometimes it's sometimes it's really depressing to read it because it's people defending, hey, you know what? It's not a football thing that Joe Mixon did. It's like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. It It's a thing that should, you know, if you're a human being, it's an issue for you, it, what, what Joe Mixon did. But it's, you know, it, it gets to be a lot of people playing favorites and people... You know, really trying to justify or turn into or make a mountain out of a molehill, and it becomes very weird when you read some of this draft stuff and some of people's takes on it. Yeah, and you know what? What a lot of the media doesn't understand, and I think what the league doesn't understand, or if they do understand it, they just don't care, which is even worse. And I've talked to several players about this. The reason why a lot of players smoke weed. The majority of players smoke weed, by the way. Like, this is not just like a, a five guys in the locker room that are bad eggs thing. The majority of players in the NFL smoke weed because it helps manage pain. And the reason why they smoke weed instead of taking pills is because pills, especially, um, you know, you look at Vicodin and Oxycodone and all the stuff that kind of takes the edge off, is highly, highly addictive. Highly addictive. They don't want to get hooked on pills because they've seen their teammates have gotten hooked on pills before. And it, it totally wrecks your body. It wrecks your life if you get hooked on these pills. Whereas weed, yes, there are cases where people have gotten you know addicted to weed or whatever, but it's a, a much, much less uh, chance of getting addicted to weed than it is getting addicted to pills. It's almost guaranteed that you will get addicted to pills if you take them regularly for pain management. It's not the same case for weed. And I think the fact that the league is denying these players a, a safe way to manage their pain on a weekly basis, and they're almost forcing them to get addicted to opiates or get suspended, I mean, that is disgusting to me. That that is the current culture of the league where they're so concerned about image and, and all that stuff that they're willing to have these players get addicted to actual hardcore drugs to avoid that controversy. It's horrible. Meanwhile, you're watching sports late at night, and they'll go to commercial, and one of the first commercials 
is often something about if you have opioid addiction, call this number. So that's how big of a problem it is. It's not just a problem in the NFL. It's a problem all over the place. Wherever you are in the country listening to this, somewhere near you, there's a town that is being devastated by these things. And it's everywhere, and it's easy to become addicted. And once people become addicted, it's it, it can change people. It's not it, It's a terrible thing, and it's happening all over, and especially in the NFL where... As we know, and as we're learning more every year, football's not good for you. It's fun to watch. We all love it. It's not good for the human body to play football, especially on the level that the NFL players are playing it. And there are a lot of injuries, and there's a lot of pain. And sometimes the pain doesn't go away when the injury does. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just football. It's the same thing with hockey. It's the same thing with basketball. same thing with baseball. Even if they're not contact sports. If you're putting that much stress on your body for 162 games a year or 82 games a year or with hockey, you know, how many of our games they play, they play for months at a time as well. You know, it puts a lot of, yeah, it it, it puts a lot of stress on the body and you have pain regardless of whether or not you're hitting a 300 pound dude 50 times a game, you put a lot of stress on your body and you, you end up getting pain. So it happens in every sport, and unfortunately, the NFL is the only major sports league in America right now that is still prosecuting these players for this, whereas baseball doesn't care, basketball doesn't care, hockey doesn't care, because they actually understand that it's either they let the players smoke weed or they have them get addicted to pills. That's the choice here, and unfortunately, football is making the wrong choice. Well, it's part of the culture around the sport, and it's the culture that often the media will present to a sport that baseball they have to care about certain drugs but those drugs are performance enhancing drugs because we blew all that and we made a mountain out of that molehill and now we've labeled an entire era as we should throw it out and we have all these players that can't get into the hall of fame and any player now that gets caught doing this stuff is almost thrown out of our minds as their entire career was a fraud which I can't ever imagine happening in the NFL. I I don't know what we would do if we had that kind of a reaction in the NFL besides throw out every result since the Super Bowl came into into existence. So yeah. it, it, so they aren't looking at that and they'd rather look at these recreational things that well that's what players are doing off the field when we're not controlling them. And and I, I wonder if that might be a little bit of it as well, that it's when it's something recreational, you can blame the player and you never have to look at anyone else outside of that player. And when it's performance enhancing drugs, well, in baseball, sometimes they look at the teams. Yeah, they look at the teams, they look at third party doctors. I mean, they're taking these guys to freaking Congress over this, you know. Oh, and conspiracy theories to beat the band. That's it's become one of the funniest things about following baseball now is even now that we're that there's stringent testing, if a player has a big head, I feel sorry for that player. Uh-huh. It's just oh, I kind of miss the nineties. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I think to a degree, um, um, we all do, and I think 
I think that might be part of the conversation we're having. The NFL in the 90s never really stopped. They never had to shine a light on any of that kind of stuff, and they're reaping the benefits of it. But unfortunately, the players, as you mentioned, are not because that means they have to focus on something else, and we know what that other, what those other things are. And that can be very unfortunate. But getting back to happier topics, the film room on YouTube your series. I can't recommend it enough to people that need to learn about the draft. If you want to know about a specific player, the breakdowns of these players are fantastic. And I think that makes you an expert in where to find football in the off season. There's not, you know, there's, as we know, there's not football going on. There won't be until September real football anyway, really. So how do we get our fix in the meantime? How do we get to what do we look for on the internet to find maybe football that we've never seen before but it's all out there and we're all as fans we're all going to love it well if you're willing to to set aside some money uh there is a a subscription service that i use for a lot of my videos i absolutely love it it's called nfl game pass you can get it on nfl.com and it lets you watch every single nfl game for the last uh, I want to say seven seasons. You can watch any game you want. It's commercial free. There's all 22 tapes. You can look at the, the coach's film and you can kind of break down plays yourself. Or if you know if you have a question because something was kind of off screen on the broadcast camera, you can go to the all 22 and see exactly where every player was and kind of understand the play better. I love the service. If you ever just want to watch a game in the middle of June, because there's no football on, you throw on a full broadcast of whatever game you want to watch and, you know, put on a, put on a barbecue and kind of pretend it's Sunday in, in November. And I, I love it. It's worth every single penny to me. The all 22 is just a, it's a fantastic invention for football that you, if you haven't watched football plays where you can see every player and everything they do during the course of a play, it really is a whole new way to watch the game. It, you're, completely different you're, sport. <laughs> you'll be blown away by the things you see that you weren't ever thinking you'd pay attention to during a football game. Yeah, it's it's a completely different sport when you see it from that angle. And I, I personally prefer it. You know, if I could just watch games in all 22 with no commentary, I'd be totally satisfied. All right, Brett Coleman, host of The Film Room, the YouTube series. You will find links to it on our Blog Talk radio page in the description for this podcast. Brett's also a contributor to Battle Red Blog on SB Nation. They cover the Houston Texans. And Brett, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at my name. It's Brett Coleman with two T's. Last name is uh, two L's and two N's, or actually, I'll just spell it because it's super German. Last name is K-O-L-L-M-A-N-N, the most European possible way of spelling Coleman, but you can find me there on Twitter. And uh, I'll be posting all my uh, hashtag hot takes throughout the draft and kind of giving my opinion on players as they get taken. Thank you for joining the pickup game this week, Brett. Have a wonderful week, and best of luck with the draft. You too. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Brett Coleman of The Film Room and Battle Red Blog for joining me this week to discuss the NFL Draft. There will be links to all of his Film Room videos on our Blog Talk radio page. You can follow 
the pickup game on iTunes and on Stitcher and on Blog Talk Radio and however you listen to this podcast, I'd very much appreciate it if you could give us a follow or a subscription, whatever it's called on your particular app of choice. This has been the pickup game. I'm Tim Williams for Brett Coleman. All the best, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend.